Hello and welcome to this Grace Baptist Mission Media podcast. You're going to hear Serving Today, a program for pastors and church leaders. If you're involved in discipling others or perhaps you teach the Bible one-to-one or in a small group, Serving Today will be relevant for a wide range of believers. Welcome to Serving Today, the programme for pastors and church leaders. This is Andrew Cook. It's good to be together again. The Practical Preacher. More Bible handling tips from Andy Robinson. And we've a new occasional series on the names of Christ. In our previous programme here on Serving Today, Andy Robinson gave us some helpful advice for handling the Bible. Andy is an experienced Bible teacher and he's also involved in training younger preachers. We saw that we need to think carefully about what a particular passage is saying rather than going to our own familiar ideas about it. He gave us some examples from the last few chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Andy then also reminded us about sermon application. We should avoid repeated tag-on applications we need to seek to apply the truth of a passage to our listeners' hearts. Well, it might be a good idea to have chapters 26 to 28 of Matthew's Gospel open, as we'll be referring to these as we go along. So here's Andy with a final area for preachers to think about and why it's important. The question we're facing is this. What is the most interesting way of saying it? What's the most interesting way of saying it? I have one thing that I keep going on about to the young preachers I talk to, and it's this. Use shorter sentences. Pretty much every talk I listen to, that's the main feedback. Use shorter sentences. And the reason is this. Often people write sermons, and the problem is when people write sermons, they they tend to think about, you know, how would I write something? But when we're preaching, we need to ask this question. How would we say something? And often when we speak, we use shorter sentences than when we write. And so if you're writing a sermon or a talk, break your sentences up. Use shorter sentences. That's easier than for people to listen to. It will help people to concentrate. Yes, it's not always possible to know where people's minds are going during a sermon. Oh, yeah, let's be honest. It's quite easy for people to be distracted. And to be honest, when I'm listening, instead of preaching, often I end up distracted. And so working hard at communicating clearly is just a good way of serving people. There are different ways that can be done. Illustrations can be a a useful way of helping people. And just thinking through this question, am I communicating this in the most interesting way possible? Staying with the chapters you've already mentioned from Matthew's Gospel, what makes for a less interesting way of communicating the text? Let me use an example of a non-interesting way. The most holy place was the place where God lived and the curtain was the thing that kept people out. And so what happened when Jesus died was that the curtain was torn in two so that people have access to the most holy place. Now that's true and that's accurate, but it's probably not the best. As you say, it's, it's very accurate, but it doesn't really drive the text home, does it? No, try this instead. Imagine being in Jerusalem on Good Friday. You see the curtain in front of the most holy place and it says to you, keep out. There's a distance between you and God. But then you're standing there. You hear a cry from Jesus' lips. He dies. There's an earthquake and suddenly the most holy place is open. There it is in front of your eyes. You know you're a sinner, 
but suddenly you can enter the very presence of God. And friends, that's our situation right now. It's open. Whatever you've done, whatever you like, you can enter the very presence of God. Yes, I can see that the way you've just said it really communicates the emotion of the truth much more powerfully than just stating the truth. Often I will try and use the word imagine in a sermon. Engaging people's imagination is really important in communication. Now, you can do that badly. Occasionally I've heard preachers go off on a long tangent where they imagine stuff that really isn't in the text. But if you can combine people's imagination and the passage... That should produce good communication. Thanks, Andy, for sharing your Bible-handling hobby horses. Is there anything else you'd like to add as we draw this to a close? Well, just one note of caution. I've talked about various techniques in application and communication and understanding the passage, but none of those replace the need to pray and to love those we're speaking to. It's funny, I've listened to various preachers over the years and I can forgive a preacher pretty much anything if I get the sense that he loves me and wants what's best for me. Somebody who loves the Lord and loves me, that will make me listen, even if he adopts none of these techniques that I've just mentioned. And in the end, none of these techniques, none of these hobby horses, none of them produce changed lives. There's not much that gives you a greater sense of weakness than preaching. These days, I'm reasonably confident that I can stand in front of people and deliver coherent sentences, although God could even take that ability away. But I'm reasonably confident I can do that. What I know that I can't do is change hearts. Yeah, I can deliver the truth, but I can't change hearts. And that's why my main prayer these days on a Sunday morning before I preach is this, Father, please do what I can't do. Father, I can speak the truth, but I can't change hearts. Father, please, won't you do what I can't do? And so these things about handling the passage well, applying well, communicating well, they matter. But in the end, we're totally reliant on the Holy Spirit to work. Indeed, we are. Thanks very much, Andy. Some years back here on Serving Today, we did a series called The Names of God. These talks explained the meaning and significance of the titles by which God is referred to, particularly in the Old Testament. And by the way, a booklet based on that series is still available, so do get in touch if you would like us to send you a copy. Well, we're now going to have the first part of an occasional series called The Names of Christ. These will take us mainly to the New Testament, but as you'll notice, many of these names or titles have their background in the Old Testament. I've asked our good friend Derek French to tell us about these. I trust that we'll have our understanding of Jesus enriched as a result of these talks. Now to introduce the first of these, here's Derek. The title of Christ we consider today is that he was called the Nazarene. This is found in Matthew 2 verse 23. And Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. You will recall this occurred after Mary, Joseph and the child Jesus left Egypt under the direction of an angel of God and returned to the land of Israel and settled in the town of Nazareth in the northern region of Galilee. This link with Nazareth is reflected by the fact that he is called Jesus of Nazareth 17 times in the New Testament. 
Now we need to be careful to point out and avoid a mistake some have made by saying this meant Jesus was a Nazarite. Number six gives the details of those who took a Nazarite vow and who were set apart by God for a period of time. They were not allowed to have any contact with the dead, nor drink wine, or eat grapes. But Jesus did touch the coffin of the son of the widow of name. He also took the hand of Jairus' dead daughter, and he drank wine. So he was not a Nazarite, even though he was entirely dedicated to God. There's also a difficulty with this verse because although Matthew says Jesus was given this title because it had been prophesied, in actual fact there is no specific Old Testament prophecy that uses the word Nazarene. Not only that, but Nazareth is never referred to in the Old Testament at all. But that fact helps us to get at precisely what Matthew was referring to. We know that in Jesus' day, Nazareth was an obscure place and a despised town, as were its people. Do you recall what Nathanael said when Philip told him he had found the Messiah? In John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, we read, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was considered of little significance, as were its inhabitants. And all of this fits in with a number of Old Testament prophecies that the Saviour would be despised and rejected by men. Again and again, the Old Testament predicts the Messiah's lower state and rejection by men. The Messianic Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8 tells us, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Then in Isaiah 49, verse 7, particularly the first part of the verse, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rule. And Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3 and verse 8, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we would look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Indeed, this is exactly what we find happened to Jesus throughout his ministry, as he was scorned and hated by men. Consider the response of the Pharisees to him in Matthew 12, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. In Luke 23, verse 11, when Jesus had been arrested, we read, And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Then again, in Matthew 27, verse 20, on following this trial, the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So we can say that what Matthew is doing is grouping these and other prophecies together when he says it was foretold Jesus would be called a Nazarene because he was despised again and again. So this title, Nazarene, teaches us about the remarkable humility that characterised Jesus, that he should have lived most of his life in this despised town. That humility would characterise him through his ministry too, 
and supremely seen in that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. J.C. Royal has written, It is a great sin to be covetous and worldly and proud, but it is no sin to be poor. Pride is the oldest and commonest of sins. Humility is the rarest and most beautiful of graces. Jesus was called the Nazarene because he was humble, and we never once hear him complain when that name was used. May the mind that was in Christ Jesus also be in us as we seek to serve him and his people. This also teaches us something of the wonderful grace of Christ. He didn't live in Jerusalem or Rome or some other famous city, but in Nazareth with the poor and needy and despised and rejected. Indeed, throughout his earthly ministry, he identified with tax collectors and sinners, with the leprosy sufferers and the sick and bereaved. He ministered to those others passed by or despised and rejected or abused or ignored. We see this happen again and again. What a gracious, compassionate, remarkable saviour Jesus is. He delights to come to needy people like us to minister his saving mercy and grace. Our thanks to Derek French and that's our time gone for now here on Serving Today. So this is Andrew Cook saying goodbye. May God from his riches in grace enable you to serve Christ. Well, thanks for listening to Serving Today, a podcast from the Grace Baptist Mission radio team. To get in touch with us, you can now send us a message via WhatsApp. The number is plus four four seven five zero eight nine three two five three four. That's plus four four seven five zero eight nine three two five three four. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>